Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. For this episode, we bring you the 2013 Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance Centenary Lecture from the State Library of Queensland. The lecture was delivered by the 2013 Walkley Award winner for leadership, Jared Ryle. A five-time Walkley Award winner, Jared Ryle leads the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists based in Washington, D.C., a former Fairfax media journalist, he is regarded as one of the world's leading investigative journalists and is the first non-American director of the ICIJ, overseeing more than 160 member journalists in more than 60 countries. Jared was introduced by the Federal Secretary of MIA, Christopher Warren. The MIA Centenary Lecture is MIA's annual keynote address focused on the future of journalism. Uh, last year we had uh, Laurie Oakes deliver a a really fascinating and I must say much tweeted a speech about political reporting uh, in the digital age and this year I'm absolutely delighted that we have Gerald Ryle to deliver it. Uh, Gerald Ryle is I think uh, rightly widely recognised today as one of the world's leading investigative journalists and over the past couple of years he's been working on what must be one of the most significant stories of his or indeed anybody else's career. Uh, Gerard emigrated uh, to Australia from Ireland in 1988 uh, and enjoyed a long career at Fairfax, working as an investigative journalist uh, at The Age and at the Sydney Morning Herald. He won Walkley Awards in 1996, 1997, 1998 and 2004. And in 2009, his book Firepower, The Most Spectacular Fraud in Australian History, revealed how a global corporation had engaged in a massive scam that tricked investors into losing millions of dollars and included the unwitting involvement of Howard government ministers. Uh, in 2011, after publishing uh, Firepower, uh, Jared received a package in the post, a hard drive containing a cache of 2.5 million leaked records. It had been sent to Jared as a result of the book he'd written and it turned out to be a treasure trove of information, more than 160 times bigger than the WikiLeaks release of US Embassy cables in 2010. Uh, what he didn't know then, but would come to realise, was that the data within that cache would reveal the names behind more than 120,000 offshore companies, trusts and funds located in the British Virgin Islands, Singapore and other offshore hideaways. Realising the scale of the scoop he had in his possession, uh, Jared left Australia to head up the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, a Washington-based outfit with a modest budget and a full-time staff of four. And from there, he worked in a network with 112 journalists from 58 countries and 42 news organisations, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian, Le Monde, The Washington Post and the BBC, in what may be the largest investigative co reporting collaboration in history. Jared's ICIJ team spent 15 months data crunching and sifting through emails, accounts ledgers and other files covering nearly 30 years. On April 3, 2013, at one minute past midnight Berlin time, revelations from the biggest financial leak in history were broadcast and carried on the front pages of newspapers around the world. What became known as offshore leaks sparked official inquiries in Israel, the Philippines, Greece, Canada, India and other countries and won credit for transforming national and international tax policies. Uh, indeed, the EU's top tax official called it the most significant trigger behind Europe's 
newfound resolve to crack down on offshore hideaways. Jared's team had cracked open the secrets of politicians, con men and the mega-rich the world over. So we're delighted that Jared was able to make it back to Australia for this year's Walkley Awards and that he's here tonight to deliver the 2013 Mia Centenary Lecture. Uh, would you please welcome Jared Ryle. Uh, thanks. Uh, he actually stole half my speech there, but yeah. Um, look, thanks for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. And um, I was at a global conference in Rio last month, listening to Glenn Greenwald declare journalism in a golden age. Greenwald is the reporter credited with breaking the Edward Snowden story, and he said professions, the profession's largest institutions, are experiencing tough times because of the changing way people consume news. And this was something to be happy about. The media, the media institutions are failing, and it's a great thing to celebrate, he said. It's good because it's forcing institutions to re-examine how they function, and they're becoming better as a result. Journalism isn't dying. It's thriving and just going to other places. At the same conference the day before, David Lee also declared that journalism was a new golden age. Lee is the retiring investigations editor of the Guardian newspaper, the paper that first carried the Snowden stories. Lee's argument was this. It's in a golden age because investigative journalists are coming together in new forms of collaboration using fresh technology. And this dynamic is producing unprecedented levels of transparency and impact. We are in the age of collaboration, Lee said. The Guardian has been involved in three of the biggest such investigative projects in the last three years. Lee cited the WikiLeaks collaboration that released hundreds of thousands of secret US diplomatic cables. The most recent Snowden disclosures of secret data collected by the US National Security Agency, and a story that I was involved with that broke worldwide in April, that's just been really and uh, already announced, that has since become known as Offshore Leaks. Offshore Leaks is a story that very much originated here in Australia. In fact, it began as a fairy tale. Let's see if I can get this right. Okay. Once upon a time, a man came along who claimed to have invented a magic pill. You put this pill in your motor vehicle, and it made your fuel last 20% longer. What's more, the pill managed to eliminate all of the toxic emissions. Now, it might seem perfectly silly to you that anyone would believe this story, but the Magic Pill Company had raised nearly $60 million from investors who all believed they were going to be wealthy when the company floated on the British Stock Exchange. The Australian Trade Commission wanted to believe so badly that they had an entire section of its website devoted to the success of this company. The heads of the firm were paraded at official functions and on overseas trade missions as examples on how other Australian firms should build their businesses. The company got $400,000 in taxpayer grants for sales it had never made. For what you have to understand at this point is that this was no ordinary company. It had no factories. It had no trucks to move its goods. In fact, it had no goods for sale at all. But it had penetrated deeply into Australia's elite 
Many of them secretly held shares in the company and they too thought they were going to be wealthy. So when I exposed all this as a fraud, I spent my time defending lawsuits, attacks in the Australian Senate, and, the and I went through all of the despair and the doubt that every investigative reporter goes through when powerful people don't want something made public. This firm was registered in a tax haven called the British Virgin Islands. And what it had been doing was selling shares in itself and sending the money to the British Virgin Islands and then bringing it back to Australia as if it were sales of the magic pill. As long as new investors could be found and the price of the shares kept going up, the game went on. It continued for nearly 18 months, even after exposes as a fraud, until finally the company stopped paying the lawyers who were suing me. By then I realized I was staring at something much bigger, a secret universe that allowed this kind of thing to happen. And my pill company was only a small part of it. Sorry, I'm having real trouble with this. After I wrote the book about the magic pill, a mysterious package, um, oh sorry, a mysterious package arrived in the mail. It was a computer hard drive, the kind you can buy in any store. But this one was packed with documents. The biggest stockpile of inside information about the offshore tax system that had ever been obtained by a journalist. We are talking 2.5 million secret records. I'd have to give up on this, I'm sorry. All right. The total size of the files, if you were to measure it in gigabytes, was about 160 times larger than the US State Department records given to WikiLeaks. There were 120,000 clients from over 170 different countries. There were Americans, Russians, Indians, Mongolians. I remember Googling one Canadian name. It was a man who was missing. He had allegedly been killed by a drug cartel, yet here he was with an email address that read something like on the run at hotmail.com. <laughs> and I thought to myself at the time, wouldn't it be great if I knew a Canadian journalist that I could give this to? But this presented me with a dilemma. I had spent most of my career as an investigative reporter, and by nature, investigative reporters are lone wolves. We fiercely protect our secrets, at times even from our editors, because we know that the minute they hear about something, they'll want it tomorrow. And to be frank, when we find a good story, we like to keep the glory to ourselves. But it's funny how life sometimes throws up opportunities in batches. A few months after I got the hard drive in the mail, I got an email from my old professor at the University of Michigan. He was on a board of an organization called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. This is a non-profit organization headquartered in Washington, DC, that oversees some of the best investigative journalists in the world. It brings them together to work on cross-border projects. He told me they were looking for somebody new to run the organization, and how did I fancy living in Washington for a few years? And this presented me with a second dilemma. Should I take a pay cut, ask my wife to leave her job at our home, to move across the world to work for a nonprofit? And what exactly did I have? Let's see if I can get this right. This is what the raw data looked like. It was a total mess and almost impossible to read. What you see here represents about 30 years of records taken from people who set up offshore accounts for clients. 
if you go sometimes four deep into each one of these folders, you'll find emails, random PDFs with passport and home addresses, and spreadsheets with the names of thousands of clients. I began doing what most other reporters would do after me. I began looking for big names. And sure, there were some familiar figures in there that I recognized. There were rich and powerful Australians. But probably the best story I saw was the behind the scenes of the Magic Pill Company, and I'd already written about that. So it was important for me to learn a lesson at this early stage. The story I was looking at was not about big names. The real value of what I had was an unprecedented look into a secret world. The same secret world I had a glimpse of when I was researching the Magic Pill. This is a world with a, with a very product of secrecy. That's what it sells. This anonymity allows some individuals and corporations to gain tax advantages not available to the average person. It allows frauds like the Magic Pill Company. It can also pit economies and entire nations against one another. You just have to look at the Greek fiscal disaster, which has been largely blamed on offshore tax cheating, or the banking meltdown in Cyprus. Both the Bernie Madoff Ponzi schemes at Enron relied on tax havens. And what about this? It's now estimated that half of all world trade and one third of all world wealth goes through tax havens. But you still might be thinking, well, this is all really interesting, but why should I care? Well, think about it. If these people and companies are not paying their fair share of taxes, then you're paying more. Remember that consortium I was talking about? Well, more than 100 of those investigative reporters went to work in more than 50 countries. Being a non-profit, we worked on a shoestring, using donated software and free tools like Skype. Our early mornings were we spent talking to Europe and our nights to Asia and New Zealand. But somehow together, over a period of about one and a half years, we created the biggest collaboration in journalism history. And the stories from this vast spiderweb of information began to emerge. On the 4th of April this year, we published simultaneously in 35 countries with major media partners. Yeah. I'm way ahead of myself. Again. Sorry, I think we have a video coming here. Well, it's a story that's made headlines around the world. A massive leak of information on offshore tax havens, revealing millions of secret documents. Earlier this month, we showed you the length some of the super-rich went to to keep that information secret. Now, meet the man who risked it all to make sure it got out. Um, look, these are some of the stories that we actually did. You probably won't recognize her soon, but you will probably remember her mother, Imelda Marcos, the shoe lady. This is the deputy speaker of the Mongolian parliament. We found him with a secret Swiss bank account with a million dollars in it. He had to resign. This is the campaign treasurer to the French president. This little story actually caused consternation in France because of an existing scandal and almost brought the government down. This is the first family from Azerbaijan. They probably don't care what we revealed. <laughs> and 
these are the Swiss bankers that uh, acted as the middlemen in some of the deals. This is um, actually a, a painting by Van Gogh, and it was bought and sold using tax havens. And this is one of the most famous bankers in Europe, and he too had to resign. And this is the son of the former um, Korean president. His home was raided and valuables were taken away, including paintings and other things. Now, what we did changed laws, and more changes were promised. Hundreds of people all over the world, including here in Australia, have begun receiving please explain letters from authorities. And we know that they've already sought to recover tens of millions of dollars around the world. The five richest nations in Europe got together and agreed to share tax information. The French president came out and called for tax, oh, tax havens to be abolished. The British prime minister used a press conference at the White House to address the stories. Last month, he introduced a new law that would make public the true owners of British companies. We were credited with putting tax evasion on the agendas of both the G8 and the G20, and we have been responsible for official inquiries in Bangladesh, India, Denmark, Austria, Belgium, Greece, South Korea, the Philippines, and a host of other countries. But why else is this a big deal? Well, as we heard in Rio, journalism is in crisis. The business models that sustained investigative reporting are broken. So you can imagine the pressure and the egos that could have killed all this. The trust level had to be so high. Any one of these journalists could have gone with the story on their own, but they didn't. The fairy tale ending, at least to this part of my talk, is that this worked. We showed that there are alternatives to the WikiLeaks method of just dumping raw information on the internet. What we perfected along the way was a potential new model for journalism, one that won't work every time, but one that now needs to be taken very seriously. We showed how just a handful of journalists can affect change across the world by applying new technology and old-fashioned shoe leather to vast amounts of leaked information. Together, we provided all important context to the computer hard drive. We put the power back into the hands of journalists using watchdog journalism methods for assessing what was important and what was not. We also applied journalism ethics to the release of information and took time to dig deep, much deeper and longer than most media allow these days. It was a big risk for sure. Many things could have gone wrong and it wouldn't work for every story. That too, I'm pretty sure about. But there is no doubt that we live in a shrinking world and the media has largely been slow to wake up to this. The issues we report on are more and more transnational. Giant corporations operate their businesses on a global scale, and clearly spies do too. Environmental and health crises are global. So too are financial flows and financial crises. So it seems staggering that journalism has been so late to tackle stories on a global level, because the information on all of those issues is now held on an international scale. And it seems staggering too that journalists have largely ignored some of the possibilities that technology brings rather than being frightened of it. But should we be so shocked anymore by our own mistakes? Earlier this year, I was trying to convince the Australian philanthropist Graham Wood to invest in our little organization. First, I asked him how he made his money and he explained the origins of what if. 
This is a travel website that sells last-minute deals on hotel rooms and other things. It's traded on the stock exchange, and many who got in early made a lot of money. I was surprised to learn Wood had no background in the travel industry. In fact, he was a computer programmer. But he had noticed the disruption the internet was causing the travel industry and the struggles of those inside the industry to cope with the change. His observation was that people were trying to meet the challenge by repeating what, they'd always worked, what had always worked for them in the past rather than thinking for themselves. Wood's path to fortune was to convince a small number of hotels to allow him to use the internet to sell their empty rooms at last-minute prices. Being an outsider, he could see what they couldn't see. Let's face it, we have been acting a lot like the travel industry for too long. Like travel agents, we mostly keep on doing the things that worked for us in the past without realizing the opportunities that are right in front of us. The kinds of opportunities that Greenwald was referring to, the kinds of innovation that Lee, a real leader in our industry, happily jumped upon even in the twilight of his career. In truth, the world of the media today is very different, and we need to start thinking very differently. Different from the time 25 years ago when I walked in off the street at the age and discovered a proud institution that regarded itself at the time as one of the best 10 newspapers in the world. I still remember the television ads from then. One was of a bolt-up paper boy who said something like, I used to be a 60-kilogram wimp until I started delivering the age. He was talking about the Saturday age, which was chock full of adverts. I was just a kid from rural Ireland, and I remember looking around at hundreds of reporters, feeling I did not belong. Here was a newspaper, not only with its own fleet of white cars, but with a team of mechanics to look after them, all paid by the rivers of gold that flowed through the building. That world is different now, and I don't mean just that the fleet has been sold off along with the building but that today's reporters hold in their hands the power to travel the world in much easier ways, literally at the movement of a finger. But instead of embracing the advances brought by the internet, we like to blame it for all of our current woes. I believe that at least some of our problems are a lot more fundamental. Long before the internet came along, we had already begun to move away from what was actually important to the public. For too long, we wallowed in our long dominance over news. News managers enjoyed such power, they figured if they simply put something on the front page, then it became news. And if they ignored it, then it would fade into oblivion, and their original judgment would be justified. I'm not just, just talking about obsessions with lifestyle and where to buy the best cappuccino, though, mind you, a few months of living in America will actually make you understand the value of some of that debate. Yeah. No, what we did was cut back on investigative reporting and on hard sceptical analysis. Instead of believing in our fundamental value to the public by doing that work, we actually started being fearful. Increasingly and unquestioningly, we began to rely on a flow of news from governments, big business, and a booming public relations industry. And somewhere along the way, we largely began pretending to do what we were supposed to do instead of actually doing it. We so forgot about our primary obligation to the public, the obligation to act as a watchdog, to shine a light into dark places, to right wrongs, to represent the unrepresented, and to stand up for truth and integrity 
that we suddenly found we had lost much of our relevance and much of our credibility. Many media outlets figured if they just tag stories the right way, then the public wouldn't really notice a difference. For instance, the state of New South Wales was corrupt for years, and everyone who lived there knew it. But apart from the work of a few journalists, this was a story that was largely ignored by the media. It was never tackled in the institutional, methodical way it should have been. And it is only now, under the protection of another largely failed institution, ICAC, that more details are coming out. Any wonder the public doubts our value? Any wonder the public has stopped buying our product? Let's face it, until the internet stole the motoring and housing ads, it didn't really matter what we put in the newspapers. A sizable part of the public bought the product just for the ads. And somewhere along the line, managers forgot that good journalism requires an obligation to the community, not just to the advertiser. The saddest part about the situation is that some reporters enjoyed things this way. Some were largely content to follow a formula that could be pushed like a cart on the tracks of the 24-hour news cycle. Instead of setting itself apart, you had a product that was largely made up of what happened yesterday. The reality is that long before the dawn of the internet, we had so moved away from our core mission that something was always going to come along to call our bluff. We had turned our product into something where the audience was largely taken for granted and where the rush to fill the product as cheaply as possible proved to be very short-sighted indeed. For too long now, we have asked how we can regain that ascendancy instead of asking what indispensable role our products can play in the lives of the communities we claim to serve. Mostly, like the travel agents, we have reacted with fear. Whatever the rights and wrongs of WikiLeaks, the media has been surprisingly slow to wake up to the lessons it posed. Whistleblowers once trusted newspapers enough to make them their first port of call. But the first lesson of WikiLeaks is that that trust with the community has been broken through past condescension and complacency. It's not just here in Australia. If you read the transcript of the case against Bradley Manning, you will see he first called the Washington Post, but he couldn't get through to a reporter. Next, he dialed the New York Times. His message wasn't returned. He called Politico and again struck out. Only at this point did he reach out to WikiLeaks. The second lesson from WikiLeaks is that technology has freed potential sources to collect information on a vast scale never before thought possible. We saw this first with WikiLeaks, then with offshore leaks, and more recently in the Snowden revelations. Times have shifted markedly towards transparency and empowered the individual, and the media needs to rediscover its role in society to be able to take advantage of this. Most media, however, have long forgotten that good journalism requires good information. And some of the people best placed to provide that information are actually their own readers or listeners. The same technology that is, that is destroying our industry has the potential to remake it, but we first have to regain our relevance and regain the public's trust. It goes back to philosophy, to the belief of what you want journalism to be. It's about having principles and defending those principles. There are barriers to free speech we should start speaking out about. It's only when you go away from Australia to work in another country 
that you realize how difficult it is to be a journalist here. Fairfax had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars defending my magic pill story. The defamation laws in Australia are one of the reasons why we have a mass media that is largely concentrated in the hands of the few. It is one reason why people are reluctant to report on obvious corruption. You have to have deep pockets to defend the truth. But technology is at least making national laws and national barriers a little less relevant. We showed with offshore leaks that you can write about any country from just about anywhere. You can choose your preferred battlefield to defend your work. We set out our stall to be a global publisher based in America, but via each one of our media partners. Try winning an injunction in 50 different countries. The Guardian, too, chose to publish the majority of the Snowden revelations through its Guardian America subsidiary. They were able to largely sidestep British law and take an advantage of the same constitutional protection for freedom of speech that exists in the US. The biggest players in the world, like the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and the Guardian, they're all going global. That's why Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, and that's why PR Midiar is financing Glenn Greenwald. Newsrooms here too need to be revolutionized. They need to team up with other media or other organizations, such as ICIJ. The formula-driven way of doing things needs to be torn apart. Instead, we need to greet each day as an opportunity to represent our community using the technology that up to now we have viewed mostly as a threat. We should embrace the concept of reverse publishing where we tell our communities what we intend to publish before we publish it in order that they can contribute and, and improve the final product. This is how we can build platforms that would allow communities to form around certain topics without forgetting that the final product will still need to arrive with lots of surprises. We have to free ourselves of daily deadlines as much as humanly possible. This might mean less, vol uh, less volume, but the less of what we do will, will, will be done better. The change should start with how journalists think about their readers. We have to stop our condescension. We have to look to the past and ask ourselves what made us relevant and compulsory in the first place. We have to identify the issues that people really care about and concentrate on those. It seems clear now that leading news brands of the future will be those who can create local or global communities around their product. That means transforming our audiences into active participants in the news or investigative cycle and allowing them to help shape content that is relevant, interesting and useful to them. Every media outlet should immediately court and seek to protect whistleblowers, big and small, because good sources are the lifeblood of agenda-setting journalism. Every outlet should construct databases of information that should rival national security agencies. And we should apply that accumulated knowledge in every single piece of journalism that is produced. We should ensure that a sizable number of reporters in every newsroom be managed separately but intensely away from the daily beats employed to get stories that no one else has. The approach adopted should be about making judgments on what might be important several days or even months in advance, where all the work you present is adding real value to the lives of the community you serve or are setting an agenda for that community. The idea embraced by many not so long ago 
that an unfiltered internet would create an information utopia has largely been proved wrong. The vastness of information is overwhelming, and more importantly, it's hard to know what to trust. The public actually needs gatekeepers. But to, re um, but to return to playing that role, it's clear that business as usual will not, will not suffice. Being optimistic in itself will not suffice. And it is clear now that cutting costs and hoping that the hurricane will pass will not work either. Let us be optimistic that we are indeed in a golden age of journalism, as suggested in Rio. Let us be optimistic, but let us agree that now that we hold in our hands a legacy that is too important to be killed off by our own inactions. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and I think we've got time to have a few, uh, few questions. Perhaps can I uh, start with one? You, you talked about the Edward Snowden uh, revelations. Sure. To what extent are they going to change, knowing what we now know that that's revealed, how big an impact is that going to have on how journalists and investigative journalists in particular work? Well, I think it tells us that we're all being monitored one way or the other, but we have to learn how to get around technology and we have to learn to educate um, sources, basically. And one of the big things we have to do now is tell people how not to get caught. And that's a, a very important part of journalism. <laughs> uh, look, there are ways it depends. Look, um, the point I make here is that most mistakes by sources are made before they come to you. And what you have to actually do is educate them not to make those mistakes. You'll find anyone who's been caught used their own computer or their own phone or they made a mistake before they came to you. So what we have to do is actually post information about how they can get information to us without getting caught. And those ways are actually quite simple. They're the old-fashioned ways. We now know that all media, you know, all internet and emails and things are being monitored. So there are, I think we just go back to the beginning again. The Lee. Um, the person who uh, gave you that hard drive was more canny than Snowden. Uh, but the really interesting thing is that some a team or uh, automated system amassed that particular set of information. Like a, it came from a police agency or a security agency. I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to where it came from. Uh, what, have you thought also about the deep throats of this world who are actually generating this and looking for the outlets? What's the psychological profile? Who are the allies who are going to provide this information to, to the news media and to journalists? What, what are they like? Well, I think that every good source has actually got an agenda of their own and you need to accept that from the beginning and you need to be very skeptical about everything that does come across your, your desk. Um, but I think these days, given technologies allow, allowing whistleblowers to gather so much information, you don't have to rely, and like in the old days you used to have to rely on their word that things happened. These days you can actually demand the document and make your judgment based on the document rather than someone's word. So again, I think it's a, it's a good, good development, not a bad one. Yeah. I've just got a quick question um, related to the last one. Uh, now, the, you're obviously not going to tell us 
who the source is, but I'm just curious, with that big hard drive, have you worked out who sent that? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to answer your, your question the same way you started. I can't tell you. I'm sorry. Yeah. The less I can say, the better. Uh, following up on, on the question about, uh, about sources, there is been a, with, with some of the big leakers, like um, uh, Chelsea Manning and um, uh, alleged big leaker, I think well, he now admits it, of course, uh, Edward Snowden, there's been a demonisation process that, uh, that, that, that goes on uh, around them. Uh, and it obviously happens also at a smaller level as well. Do journalists have an obligation then to to those whistleblowers or those sources? Um, the only obligation you have to a source is, is if they ask to be kept secret that you keep them secret. And like Touchwood, and I don't have any wood in front of me, we've managed to do that when everyone else seems to be in jail or in Russia, mm -hmm. which is a very important um, development. Um, but uh, again, I think it's increasingly difficult um, for people to get in contact with you without being caught. So again, we need to go through this process of education first. Yeah. Yeah, hi, Jared. Uh, Peter Ryan from the ABC. Um, you mentioned uh, two and a half million secret records. I was wondering if you'd just be able to tell us what the team you were working with, how long they had to spend going through those, those records and what the process was as far, and, and as far as verifying, because obviously you would have had to be 100% sure you had a watertight case and with two and a half million files or secret records, um, quite a big job. Um, I was very lucky in that I'd actually done a lot of work on firepower and by the time I um, got around to getting the material, the civil litigation was going on and so the court had actually subpoenaed a lot of documents from one of these companies that I had the records on and I was able to match the documents from the court to the documents I had and I actually realized that I had a lot more documents than had been subpoenaed by the court. Um, that was the first verification we had. But yes, I mean, the whole point of the story is that the documents were only the beginning of the story. The journalists had to go out there and put context around the documents. They were just clues. That's where we began. It's certainly not where the stories ended because there were no obvious stories in there when we first started. Uh, but uh, you had to effectively dismantle and reassemble the, the files into a usable form, really. Yeah, we took many, many months to actually read the documents. And in fact, I, when I first gathered a team together in Washington in January 2012, we had a computer expert there, and his job was essentially to break the names out and to give us a list of names by country. And six months into the project, we didn't have that. It was actually a team in New Zealand that ended up you know, basically doing all that by hand because we'd noticed that there was a code um, that was a common code with all of the various spreadsheets. And literally, a team of volunteers got together in New Zealand and put all those spreadsheets together and got all those names for us. Uh, hi, hi, Jared. Um, I, I know that um, Linton, Besser and Kate McClymont did a piece on the um, offshore leaks and that ran in the Herald. But from memory, it didn't run on April 4. No. What, what, what was going on there? Because you know, you've got that roll call of international countries that have kind of broken those stories, and Lyndon and Kate obviously broke a story out of, out of, out of your data. What oh. was the timing issue there? Well, the truth was that a lot of media that we approached didn't think this was a story. And um, we were turned down by two organisations here, the first two that we went to. So by the time um, April rolled around, it was just too late to get anyone involved. Um, it was a question of some, some bit, some didn't. 
Well, I suppose there's no harm in naming those organisations. They're not secret sources. <laughs> Uh, there were pretty major organizations. Actually, that was one of the most frustrating parts of this whole project, is that some people thought it was a very good story, and others didn't. Um, and as I say, there were very major media that turned it down. Um, I'm not going to name the media, but <laughs> you, uh, there aren't very many media here in Australia. You can guess which ones I went to. So if two large media organizations knocked you, turned you down, it must be very hard to work out who they are. Uh, but it was a very difficult story to understand. You've got to remember that like, everyone kept asking me, even my boss asked me when we first started working, he wanted Mitt Romney to be, to be in the data, and Mitt Romney was not there. And when we first started working with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, they brought 300 names with them, and they typed all 300 into the data set, and there wasn't a single one in there. Everyone wanted their prime ministers or government ministers to be in there. The big lesson for us was that you had to work with what you had. You couldn't make the story up. This was just a clue, and then you had to build context around it. But, but, but wasn't it also a bit, I think you've said this before, that it was a bit what Jay Rosen calls the church of the savvy, this kind of journalist who says, oh, well, everybody knows that everybody does that, so there's no story there. There was a little bit of that. I mean, everything that we were looking at was perfectly legal, um, unless we could prove otherwise. So, like, unless you could prove there was a fraud like the magic pill fraud, um, most of what we were looking at was perfectly legal. And a lot of editors struggled with that concept that, even when you have something that's legal, it can still be wrong, or it can at least be a very good story. Um, when we approached, uh, we eventually worked with the Washington Post after we got turned down by another one, um, by our first choice, and they just wanted the names, we had 4,000 American names, and they were only interested in about 30 of them because they only wanted people who had been convicted of some wrongdoing. And they totally ignored all of these you know, Hollywood producers and other people that were in the data that you know, we thought were quite good stories. Uh, Michael Coggan from the ABC. I'm, I'm interested in uh, your view on uh, doing the work you do in a newsroom environment. I'm sort of trying to mount a case to work from home a bit more often. <laughs> I'm sorry, can you ask that question again? Uh, uh, the, the kind of work you do, I mean, you're talking about stepping outside the churn of a newsroom, obviously, to do what you do over long term. I mean, for journalists to do it, journalists who like me, you work in a newsroom environment who are trying to do investigative pieces and you find yourself getting sucked back into the churn and not being able to do the work that you'd like to do. Uh, what, what do you have to say about the way you guys operate in, in, in terms of the news churn and, and getting out of that and, and uh, concentrating on the work you do? Well, I guess that's the whole point of what I was trying to say is that we need to stop doing that. We need to get back to doing what's actually important again and stop doing so much and do a little bit less but do it better. Um, I, I do think these kinds of stories are what people really want. Um, I, I agree. I think, yeah. but, but do you break down the newsroom environment to do that? That's what I'm getting Well, at. again, I think newsrooms have to change. I think they've actually got to probably split themselves in two and have one half of their newsroom doing this kind of work and one half doing the day-to-day -day stuff. And until they do that, they're going to become more and more, or I guess, more and more irrelevant to, to the public. Up, up the back here. Uh, ben Butler, Fairfax Media. Uh, you were talking before about uh, firepower and how that was the genesis of your investigation. Uh, the net result of firepower um, and your book, which is excellent, in Australia, um, on the official side, has been really not much. There's been a federal court case that's gone basically nowhere, uh, zero prosecutions, zero convictions. Um, I wondered if you'd be able to talk a little bit about what you think about um, the regulatory environment here in terms of going after people who've committed 
what you've described as a, uh, I think, the world's greatest fraud or Australia's greatest fraud, and yet no one's ever been held accountable. Yeah, and the guy who invented the magic pill or claimed to have invented is still walking around Sydney. Um, look, again, this is the kind of obvious corruption that I think we need to write about here more often. I mean, it's, it's just wrong that this could happen. Um, but it was clearly because too many people had too many vested interests. There were too many people with shares in the company and too many people who were compromised along the way. And it would have been too embarrassing, I think, to have the real truth come out. But the truth of the matter is there was no criminal action taken in this case. It was only civil action. And I think the only thing that happened was that Tim Johnson, the head of Firepower, was banned from being a company director for 10 years. I mean, the money is still gone. You know, and it's actually insurance companies that have been sued as a result. So effectively, everyone here in the room is paying a small price for this and for this inaction. Uh, Stuart? Jared, you, you just said that you know, we need to become more relevant to audiences. But if you look at what happens on the Sydney Morning Herald website, it's um, Sydney property. It's uh, a, a good ribbing crime read. Uh, and it's something went wrong on Twitter or Facebook. Um, so, and that's the kind of feedback loop that seems to be driving a lot of news agendas and newsrooms these days. So I'm just wondering how you kind of, and, and that's based on audience feedback, that, that is the ratings are high for those stories and, and the, the dull but worthies kind of get pushed down to the bottom of the website. So I'm just wondering, how a newsroom kind of copes with that feedback, which seems to be, if you start doing audience-led, we're going to have um, cat, cat videos on our site pretty soon. Well, I think the reason they've got cat videos is that video actually makes money, um, whereas text doesn't. Um, as Look, it's very, very easy to generate a headline that will get you lots of eyeballs if you use certain algorithms. That doesn't mean that people, you know, that that the stories are worthy, that people genuinely want to, to look at them. It's just, you know, you can generate, without having any journalists involved, you can get a story and get people to read it. It's, I still think it's wrong, and I still think it's in the wrong direction, and that's what's killing our industry. Uh, Laurie? Uh, Laurie Oakes, uh, Jared. Uh, when Greenwald uh, broke his story initially, he was accused on television of, of being a criminal, and he was told by a fellow journalist he should be in jail. We've got a kind of similar thing here in Australia with the latest Snowden documents where journalists and news organisations are being criticised for running these stories and uh, criminality has been suggested on, on the part of the, the media people. Is, is this an issue? Should we just run anything we get without any concern for national security? What, what rules would, would you apply, if any? And uh, do you think it's a legitimate debate in the first place? I, I think it's a legitimate debate, but I think we should run everything that's of public interest, and, and that is the skill of the journalist. We've got to decide ourselves what's of public interest. I think that material is of public interest. Um, you know, go figure, basically. The, the editors have got to start being braver. And I think it's kind of a ridiculous debate to, for some media to say that they wouldn't run it, when you know damn right well that if they had the material, they'd be running it themselves. Yeah, Jared, uh, just following up on the earlier questions about the uh, two major media organisations in Australia <laughs> that were offered the, um, the story, um, how, how far up did your offer go um, in relation to that offer? Did it go beyond directors of news or to the managing directors? Or what reasons were you given um, for them knocking back? 
Well, it was just a lot of work, and I don't think they fully understood the story. It was a very difficult story, a very difficult concept to sell to an editor. Here, you're looking at something that's perfectly legal, but you're using stolen documents to look at that. Um, they, their reaction was the same as most editors around the world. Where are the big names? Why, you know, is there wrongdoing? Can we prove wrongdoing? All the answers to that were, well, yes, we have some interesting names, but we can't prove wrongdoing. Even our own legal advice was that, that, you know, we had some amazing documents and some Americans, but unless we actually saw what they declared to the tax office, we couldn't accuse them of wrongdoing. But it still didn't make the story um, less interesting. I thought it actually made the story more interesting that here was an out a parallel universe that existed that was legal, but that most people didn't know anything about, and, and certainly most people weren't using it. But if you knew how to use it, you could. But does that worry you even further that um, some journalists or news organisations expect everything to be delivered on a plate as a package rather than digging, digging and inquiring and being sceptical? Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, in fact, it was the biggest part of the job. Was they all wanted us to do the work for them. And the, the organisations that got the most out of this were the ones that actually did the work themselves. So. OK, well, give me a call next time. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I think you talked about the... I've heard you talk about the German example where they initially weren't interested and then... Yeah, look, we had... Yeah, we had, um, we had ten... The German... Um, we worked with German TV um, and Radio NDR and we worked with Süddeutsch in Germany. And they put ten reporters on this story and they said, OK, we're going to give it two weeks. And by the end of the two weeks, they'd found nothing. So they stopped. And we were very lucky in that one of the reporters kept digging. And he started looking around at um, the lists of people from other countries. And in fact, he looked at the British list and saw a name that he recognized, a guy called Gunter Sachs. And Gunter Sachs is one of the most famous people in Germany. He used to be married to Bridget Bardot. And then from the moment that he saw one name, they were back in, in, on the story again. I mean, we had like 15 reporters working in Japan for months and months, and they didn't publish anything. So it's not just here. It's, it's a very, very difficult story to understand and to, to get your head around. Uh, Martin Saxon from one of those news organizations that obviously didn't take the story. Um, you were talking about uh, protecting sources, and the only responsibility you have is to keep their name secret if they want to be. If you had a situation, and I speak from experience, that this uh, massive drop of information could have only come from two or three people, or possibly one person. What would you have done in those circumstances? Would you have not run the story? I knew that. Or would you talk the person yeah. out of giving you the document in the first place? Well, it's a difficult question, but I probably um, would have at least had pause. I knew by the time that I was publishing the material that this information could have actually been in the hands of quite a number of people because I knew that it was actually in the hands of the British tax office and the American tax office and the Australian tax office a year before I got it. And in fact, we had this you know, very funny situation after the day after we published where we had three men in black suits and there were black men turn up at our door from the IRS in, in America and they were demanding the material. And then they, um, we had um, subpoenas from, or we had threats of subpoenas from the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. Um, but then about you know, three or four weeks after we published, they all sheepishly put out a press release saying that, in fact, they had the material. And their excuse, by the way, is that they didn't understand how to read it. Uh, uh, Philippa. I'm just interested in your comments about um, journalists have to think about their audience and stop their condescension. Um, 
and think about the issues people really care about. I'm just wondering if you could expand on that and uh, and what you see as the evidence of journalists being condescending. I could think of a few, but um, just a few thoughts there. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll set you a task. Ring any newsroom in Australia after hours and try and get through to a reporter. That's condescension, basically. I remember at least two um, of my best stories at the age were delivered to me by people who rang up late at night and the woman on the switchboard basically patched them through to my home phone and I would talk to them. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, we're also guilty of that, by the way. I mean, I've been complaining about our parent organisation for a long time now. We, you can't get through to a reporter. Now, Greenwald, let's say, I mean, I, that are not Greenwald, I'm Manning, I mean, I gave you the example. He tried three different organisations before he got through to an organisation that started listening to him. That's the condescension I'm talking about. Uh, last question up the back. Uh, James Masola from the Financial Review, Jared. Um, first of all, before you get started, anyone who's interested, my phone number's on the internet, my mobile number's in my voicemail. Feel free to leak. Um, a serious question, a follow-up to Laurie's uh, question about public interest. You set public interest as the first test. I think while the WikiLeaks files, um, the releases were fantastic, I think they failed the second public interest test in that they, some of the people named in the files were actually put at risk by the sort of holus bolus publication. Did you confront any situations like that uh, with, with uh, the offshore leaks documents that came into your possession? Um, we, we were very, very carefully through all of the material to make sure that didn't happen. Um, but our issues were very, very different. There were no national security issues or there was no issue of anyone you know, potentially dying or anything from our material. You could argue maybe that by publishing the fact that someone has an offshore company, you're probably implying that they're wealthy and that maybe in countries like Brazil or other countries that, they, that might make them at risk. But um, none of those accusations were actually thrown at us. No one really criticized the story. Even the tax offices are quite happy with the fact that thousands or hundreds of people have come forward now and have been very embarrassed. We've had a few complaints. Um, we've only had one lawsuit, which is quite amazing considering we had 120,000 names and we've published most of them. Oh, okay. Jane, my last, last question. All right, so uh, just th thinking about this from a freelancer's point of view, you're talking about thousands and thousands of man time, hours of man and woman time. And, you know, one lawsuit and uh, a lot of wasted time trying to sell to people that won't buy from you because it's too complicated. And that sounds very, very, very similar, you know, reminiscent to me. I'm not quite hear where you're coming from on that one. Um, do you actually make any, I mean, I know it's not for profit, your organisation, but do you even cover your costs, or, you know, come out in the black after an operation like that? Um, no, we're, we're entirely funded by foundations. Most of our money comes from Europe, from uh, an organisation in Holland. And we give everything we do away, which is kind of, it, it does hurt at times because you tend to, you know, uh, cover costs of major media organisations as you go along. We set up forums, communication systems, we flew people around the world, um, and we kind of subsidised, I guess, the major media when we were doing this, but um, that's what we're there to do. Um, and we can do it, you know, uh, the return for us is that we get the use of their reporters and we get the use of, of those organisations as publishers. I never ever see myself as a primary publisher. Our website is kind of like an irrelevance compared to a front page of The Guardian or a front page of Süddeutsch. Um, that's the return we get. And that's what our um, funders actually like. They want us to have impact and they want us to basically be relevant.
Okay, on that basis, we'll uh, wrap it up. Will you please thank uh, Gerard Ryle? Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley news and events.